This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. Thanks to all of you for coming here this evening to hear Jose Andreas talk about his new book, We Fed an Island. Uh, no doubt you all remember the headlines about Jose's time in Puerto Rico starting a year ago. Celebrity chef goes to the devastated island in the immediate aftermath of Hurricane Maria, planning to help the recovery by cooking some meals, but intending to stay uh, only a week or so. Instead, he and thousands of volunteers who heeded the call from his nonprofit organization, World Central Kitchen, remained for months, preparing and delivering more than three million meals to every part of the island. At, 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 one, at one point, they had more than 20 kitchens functioning and turning out more than 150,000 meals a day. Jose, in his book, recounts not only this Herculean meal effort, he expounds on a number of things that he regards as broken, broken about the systems and approaches used by FEMA, the Red Cross, the Salvation Army, and other official relief groups portraying them as tangled in red tape, organized poorly, and wedded to outmoded, top-down models of disaster assistance. Jose's story and his message in We Fed an Island, which was co-written with journalist Richard Wolff, are truly inspiring and instructive. Jose's own life was amazing even before what happened in Puerto Rico. He grew up in Spain and came to the United States after serving on a uh, serving as a cook on a Spanish naval vessel, often credited with pioneering Spanish tapas or, or small plates in the United States. Jose, over the past 25 years, has established more than uh, 30 restaurants and food places around the country, offering uh, a wide range of culinary experiences. His involvement in Haiti cooking in refugee camps after the earthquake there led him to create the World Central Kitchen, a nonprofit aimed at developing smart solutions to counter hunger and assist in local communities. Net proceeds from We Fed an Island are, are being donated to, to the World Central Kitchen. Jose will be in conversation here this evening with uh, Tim Carmen, who's been in the Washington area for nearly a decade and a half, uh, writing about food, first for the Washington City Paper and for the past eight years for the Washington Post. So ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Jose Andreas and Tim Carmen. I'm not cooking. <laughs> I mean, I'm not cooking, I'm serious. Jose, this has to be the most useless job in the world. You're the, probably the only person that could sit up here and do a monologue without needing a moderator. I could just say, Jose, what's going on? And then an hour later, you'd still be talking. Are you kidding? I mean, guys, I think Carmen here, no, because he's here, but I don't know. I hope you're reading him often because this guy can write like a god. It's enough. He's an amazing writer, and I'm so proud we have him here in Washington at the Washington Post. Thank you. Thank you. So, 
I guess we should start with what is going on in, in the Carolinas. It's in the news. You're down there. Your organization is down there. Can you give us a quick update yeah. on what's happening? Yeah, we have. Um, you can follow us at wallcentralkitchen.org uh, or Twitter, World Central Kitchen. Um, we have an amazing team down there, uh, led by, by Nate Mook, who is like my saint. He's the guy that came first uh, with me to Puerto Rico. Uh, I think I called him three hours before I was taking the plane, and I told him, I'm going. And three hours later, he was next to me. Uh, Nate very much is the guy that makes everything happen, and then I take the credit for it. Uh, so in Carolinas, we are, um, you know, with kitchens, what we do. Uh, we have already two kitchens, uh, one in Wilmington and the other one in Raleigh. We have three more kitchens, which we were waiting for the entire hurricane to pass by and activate them and see if we have to open new kitchens or if those survive uh, the storm. But uh, we've been cooking through the hurricane. Uh, feeding different people from first responders, etc. We are ready to do anywhere between 25,000 meals a day all the way to 100,000. But we are one more organization. Uh, I see that we are very ready. Uh, I don't mean us, but what I see from the governor to the federal government, FEMA, the big NGOs, the National Guard, and I think I want to take this moment just really to give a big round of applause to all these men and women that leave everything behind to help fellow citizens. So that's what we're doing. Um, and it feels very hard in this moment, even with this book, even it's, it's kind of uh, amazing that we have this book talking about a hurricane in the middle of a, a very big hurricane. Because yes, it's a lot of criticism, but I hope that nobody who will read this book will see it as a criticism, but as a, a way forward to see how problems, we should transform them into opportunities. But the reality is that we heard that after Katrina, we will be ready to don't fail. And I think Katrina, everybody agrees that to a degree, the federal government fell. And Maria, we fell, we left behind 3.5 million Americans. And we need to make sure that we learn the lessons so this will never ever happen again. That's the reason we brought this book. I, I have to wonder if the government is learning the lessons. I mean, as we were talking about backstage, um, it sounds like you are funding all of the, the work in the Carolinas through World Central Kitchen. Well, You're uh, not working with FEMA. Um, and you haven't had any conversations with FEMA since? Puerto Rico. So I'm wondering how much is the government learning about what happened in Puerto Rico or does it not care to learn? They, they care enormously. Uh, World Central Kitchen is uh, 501c3 and I'm not funding anything. You are funding everything. So thank you very much. I mean it because at the end we've been supported by different people that put one dollar or put a million dollar. And that's the way we've been doing so many things over the last year. Uh, I want to be clear, uh, I have the most respect for the people in the federal government, the most respect for people of FEMA. At the, at the end, you will see in this book the stories we tell. Many of the things that happened were thanks to people of the federal government, but sometimes things didn't happen from the top. Things happened at the bottom. We got Homeland Security 
ICE and HSI that I know right now they're in the news because they seem they are the bad people uh, separating families and immigrants and sending them out. Actually, the men and women of Homeland Security, they did an amazing job in Puerto Rico because they were delivering sandwiches every day. We got people from the Navy, and me, I'm a Navy boy, even the Spanish, who this American Navy kicked up 100 years ago. Um, <laughs> I was so happy to be working next to them, and they were volunteering with us in the kitchens in Vieques. We got people from the National Guard helping us cross rivers without bridges to bring food to very remote areas. We were getting the private sector giving us helicopters to bring food to mountain tops. We were getting help of private citizens giving us ships so we could bring the food every day to Vieques and Culebra. We got the army engineers giving us maps so in real time we knew where we had the kitchens and where we had the different shelters and the different communities that needed food. At the end, it took a village to do what we did. And the first day, we need to remember, we were 20 people. We went to 25,000 volunteers, an army of 25,000 strong. We had one kitchen. We opened 26 kitchens at one moment, running 18th at the same time. We did 1,000 meals the first day. We reached 150,000 meals a day. We went from 1,000 meals the first day to 3.8 million meals. At the end, it took a village to make it happen. So one of the things that you talk about in the book is this, this idea of embracing the chaos. And I, you, know, you talk about it in sort of juxtaposition of dealing with FEMA, going to FEMA headquarters, not even being able to get a pass to get into FEMA headquarters. And I would imagine you did. You, you probably just found chaos wherever you went. There was no electricity. There was no cell phones. There was, roads were blocked. And yet you found ways to go throughout the entire island and find ways and people and volunteers and uh, distribution systems. And all of that was improvised. None of that was drawn up on a chalkboard. It's like, can you talk a little bit more about this embracing chaos in the middle of chaos? I mean, it's what I call embracing complexity, right? Uh, I think I read that on a Harvard Review cover. <laughs> because it's complex to, to run life at times. And you have, you know, I always say that if you follow the recipe and nothing happens as you plan, you can do two things. You can complain about how bad the recipe was or how bad the chef writing the recipe was or how bad your ingredients were, or how bad your kitchen is, and you can keep complaining. Or you can go and be happy and change the name of the recipe. <laughs> okay, now, in, in plain English, at the very beginning, the first days, we opened one kitchen in Jose Enrique. If anyone has been to San Juan, uh, Jose Enrique is an amazing restaurant. <laughs> but it's an amazing restaurant because he's an amazing chef that has a big heart and has an amazing family next to him. I text him. We began communicating through WhatsApp. And he knew I was coming, but he was not very aware when, how, or if I will arrive. But nonetheless, when we arrived there, he was there already with his kitchen staff, 
and ready to do whatever. They were cooking Sancocho in the back. But obviously, they had Sancocho for 100, and they could be feeding thousands more. Um, we got on a car, and where we began buying food. You have money, it's the great thing of America. <laughs> you pay, you buy, business. <laughs> but we knew we were going to need more food. What do you do in that situation? Because many people have said, man, Jose, you were brilliant. You were able to get food where nobody was able. You were bringing it. I'm like, nope. What did you do? I went to the biggest food store in the island. I spoke to the owner. Happens he was from the same uh, village I was born. <laughs> and he had the ship where I did my military service on the wall of his office. <laughs> the Juan Sebastián del Cano, all these things helped. He, I gave him my credit card. I fill up a line of credit. I gave him the name of, uh, even we are an NGO, I, uh, uh, you know, I, I, have, we, I don't have a CFO on, on payroll. So I, I call the CFO of my company and say, can you help me to fill up a line of credit? And my CEO, Kimberly Grant, we fill up the line of credit. And in America, when you have a line of credit, you know what happened? <laughs> that you can get anything. <laughs> so I had people asking me in the island from big NGOs telling me, how are you able to get the food? And I told them, you go to the food store, you open a line of credit. <laughs> and they give you the food. <laughs> and you call the next day, and they give you the food again. <laughs> and then you send them a check, they're happy, and they keep sending you food, and they open you the line of credit to more money because they know you mean business. At the end of the day, that complexity was not so complex. Complexity is where we were running out of diesel. We had no diesel to run the refrigerator and the lights in the restaurant. So we bribe people. Yeah, I bribe people. <laughs> and not like all the people in power that don't recognize it. I did bribe people. It was a good moment to bribe somebody, but we were used exchanging food for diesel. Diesel that was vital for us to run the generator. And then food for gas. So we had the track, the food trucks to be able to deliver the food. And so the process began. We needed bread for sandwiches. And I remember going to FEMA and, tell, and talking to people saying, why are we talking to bring food from the homeland when we have six bakeries in the island? Bread, and especially if you study Napoleon Bonaparte and food, is the essence to keeping an army up and running. The army marches on its stomach. Bread is essential. If you have six top quality bakeries in the island producing top bread, if you give them a little bit of help and use you help them get a generator, all of a sudden you hire the people locally, they start producing bread, boom, you can be doing thousands of sandwiches a day to feed an island. You see, we began solving little problem by little problem. Before we knew, those problems were becoming opportunities. And that way we embrace complexity with only very simple solutions. Any obstacle we have, let's transform it into an opportunity. And this way, one plate at a time, we're gonna be able to do more. That's what we did. I, you know, I think one thing that you 
specifically point out is the difference between the classic government provisions during a disaster, which is like the MRE, or canned goods, or things that you have to cook yourselves, they're sort of useless in the long term in a long-term disaster like Puerto Rico. Because, well, you talk about it, because you, you described MREs in a very unique way in the book. Um, and if you don't know, MREs are meals ready to eat. They're, they're usually rations for the army soldiers. Um, but they're the, one, they're the kind of food that is distributed in, in post-hurricane, post-disasters, and there's very little hot food prepared uh, for the people, but it's usually a very short-term uh, situation, but yours was not short-term. Well, there's two parts of the MREs. Uh, number one, if you are in the military and you had to be on MREs, I mean, sorry guys. <laughs> and you know it. Uh, but meals ready to eat, obviously, is a very smart way in the sense that you can buy an MRE, put it in the middle of the street, come back 50 years later, and the MRE is there. <laughs> Some flowers, but still the food will be good. That's, that's the, the human ingenuity. I mean, we are able to create things that are amazing. And you may say that something like this is important, but this comes with a lot of problems. If you are an elderly person, you are on an MRE, with his, this high protein diet becomes really a health issue that can put your life in danger, especially in an emergency like this. So you cannot have 70, 80, 90 year old eating on MREs is used not healthy for them. You can't even put their lives in danger. Comes with more things, especially on a Republican administration that I 100% support that point of view. Let's make sure that we don't do things that waste taxpayer money. I think nobody wants the taxpayer money be wasted. I think that's Republican and Democrat alike. When an MRE costs between 10 and $15, that's a lot of money. Those are hundreds of millions that are sometimes used in a way that they are not effective. Because you can do the same for a fraction of the cost and in the process put the local economies up and running. If you have every single Puerto Rican without a job, and more than 10% of the economy runs of restaurants, start activating local restaurants that will start feeding locally people. That way you save money to the federal government, that way you start employing people locally, that way you start giving better quality food one place at a time. But the problem of the MRE that really I saw we need to fix, when you give food like this, usually maybe you see it on movies, that is the typical parachute, parachute that comes down in the middle of an open field and they drop there all the food and people keep running to pick up the food. If you do that, you lose intelligence. You don't really know what's happening in one community at a time. And then you do it one day and maybe you never come back again for 10 days or two weeks or three weeks. That's what people were telling us. That sometimes they saw people, the military, or they did a dropping helicopter. They dropped the food and they left. And they never came back for days or weeks. What we were doing, at one point we were having 900 places that we were distributing daily food. And every time we went to a place, we went back every day, every day until we learned that the community somehow was under control. By going, we began learning intelligence. We began learning the people that needed blue tarps, the people that needed medication, 
the people that needed little generators. So an old woman that had issues breathing and needed her breathing machine without electricity, we were putting her life in danger. If we knew about that, we could activate the generator and bring that woman the generator. By going every day with a hot plate of food, we were not only bringing hope, we were not only telling them that the rest of America cared for them. In the process, we were gathering important information that helped us or others to provide quicker and better, smarter help one community at a time. That's why what we did was so important because we were not dropping and leaving. We were there supporting every day for weeks and months. And that way we learned how to help the island. But what One thing that you, you got in your own discomfort zone at one point while you were down there, I mean, probably many points, but you were activating kitchens, you were activating restaurants, you were activating, you know, you were getting people involved that you were familiar with or you knew their skill set. At one point, a church approached you or approached somebody in your organization and said, we, our community is hungry, we want to go in and cook. And they didn't bring it to you because they knew what your answer would be. Your answer would be no. And, but they did it anyway, and they did it behind your back. And I wonder if you would kind of talk about that a little bit and what, what you learned from that. Yeah. I mean, not so much behind my back, but uh, I love to create flat organizations where at one point everybody can be making decisions because it was very obvious uh, that we had to be making decisions on the spot. And this was Erin Schroeder, who is this uh, young woman, uh, California. She even ran for Congress uh, three years ago. Um, uh, she lost, but it's funny, she ran for Congress. And one day she showed up and she became the operations officer of the entire operation. And she's still there almost a year later, uh, running operations for uh, Wall Central Kitchen. But the church for me was nothing. I mean. Uh, um, I'm, I'm Catholic myself. My wife knows I don't go to church every Sunday, but you know I have other ways to talk to God. Um, and, and churches are super important because they are at the heart of the community. But for me, the very important thing is that was kitchens that were clean, effective, professional, to do the best quality possible food. But this priest, uh, this pastor, was so persistent it's like, I always give this speech that you need to knock on the door, and if the door doesn't open, knock again, and if it doesn't open, you just bring the door down or jump through the window. Well, that guy obviously heard my his speech before. <laughs> and, and it was beautiful to see because this was another community in the mountains that they were having a hard time getting food. You need to understand that was supermarkets were empty. Electricity still was not functioning in big, parts of the island was no gas, so was no ATMs, were no restaurants. So in the, understand the situation, I mean, it's chaos, as, as chaos can be understood. So it was good when we saw people that want to gather communities and that they were watching what we were doing and that they will be smart enough to come to us and say, we want to do the same in our community. That's how we reach so many communities. That's why we were able to feed uh, almost 150,000 people one day at a time. For many weeks, we did over 100,000 meals a day because we had many community kitchens all across the island. So persistence pay for everybody, including 
people like him, Eliomar, who was the, again this pastor who we love. He showed what the leader is made of. A leader is there used not to praise himself, but a leader is there to serve their people. And is the I the person versus we the people. Uh, I think I think somebody got the wrong copy that was badly printed and read I the people. <laughs> and got in the wrong hands, and that's what happens. But still, it's we, the people. So that was that example of that guy, and, and, and I'm thrilled that happened, because he became one of our uh, good stories of many, many stories. Well, talk about, a about what has happened with you personally, and uh, really World Central Kitchen um, since Puerto Rico. Uh, you've obviously been in many different disaster zones since then, and I'm wondering how you're funding it, how you're balancing your restaurant life, your personal life, with now your new <laughs> my, my, disaster relief My wife, relief my wife I think, is here, okay? You are asking me this question now? <laughs> <laughs> I apologize. Really? I thought we were friends. <laughs> <laughs> Embracing complexity. <laughs> Is, is my wife embraces complexity. <laughs> um, She's married to you, she has to. Listen, I, again, uh, Puerto Rico happened because we came from Houston. And in Houston, um, it was great. We had many people, no? uh, many people that came from my team, Charisse, uh, Victor Albizu, and we were able to do thousands of meals. We kept moving from kitchens because they keep kicking up kicking us out of kitchen, so we always found a new kitchen. We got almost a million. We should be proud of that, Washington. It's a company here called Cuisine Solutions. They are one of the biggest food companies in the world. They are experts on sous vide. Nobody does better quality food in volume. Cuisine Solutions gave us a million pounds of meat that we took with us down to Houston, and we were able to give it to the Red Cross, Salvation Army. Almost we look like John Wayne in the middle of, of Texas bringing cows through the desert. <laughs> but we were bringing it in a beautiful big truck, and it's kind of the same, but modern times. Uh, but before that, you know, we've been in many other places before. I've been in other places. He was uh, obviously Haiti often. Um, but nobody, you know, um, came to see what we were doing. But we were not doing it for anybody to see it. We were feeding people in need in very remote areas of, of Haiti. And this gave me a lot of experience over the years, obviously, watching Sandy. Uh, I don't know if America, if Washington is aware, but we, some of my favorite people in the whole world, they are from the Southern Baptist Church. The Southern Baptist Church have the most amazing network over the last 60 years that every time there was a tornado or a hurricane or anything else, the people that will be feeding Americans in need will be the men and women of the Southern Baptist Church. They are the people that inspire me to keep doing what we are doing. Those men and women are amazing. And one of the issues we face in Puerto Rico, and I understand is that they didn't have the game in Puerto Rico. 
but nobody challenged them to come Puerto Rico to cook. It's not their fault. Their role is in other parts of America. It's an NGO, and they are there to do it, uh, not for profit. But I watched those men and women in action many times. I saw them in New York um, after Sunday, and they're able to start feeding 20, 30,000 people a day like that. They so, have their own trailers, right? They, they cook out of their own trailers. Yeah, they can't do a kitchen uh, any, anywhere. Yeah. So uh, this is amazing, and this is some of the great stories uh, that sometimes we are not aware. Um, in the case of Puerto Rico, though, was different than anything. In the case of Puerto Rico, was clear. The big NGOs that were supposed to be in charge of taking the lead on feeding, the problem was so big that they decided that this was not going to be the role. And the issue is that the problem was obvious when you saw in meetings that they were doing it by committee. When you do things by committee, you know what happens? That everybody's in charge. And by committee then means that nobody's in charge. In those situations, we need to have people in charge, people taking responsibility, and people leaving. And the only thing we did was taking responsibility in our little thing that was, let's feed as many people as we can today. No a week from now, no a month from now. People are hungry today, let's feed as many people we can today. Because any American doesn't deserve anything less. So I wanted just to put a reminder out there, uh, in about 10, 15 minutes, we're gonna take some audience questions, so please. In English, start please. thinking of your <laughs> own questions. Um, so I wanted to ask, you had hinted at one point that, and maybe regret is too strong of a word, but you, you um, almost wish that you still had the restaurant in the Trump Hotel, because you would have access to the president and you could talk to him. And I wonder if, if you still feel that way. Like if you, had, if you had access to him, do you think you could get through and talk to him or is he just not, didn't want to listen? Um, I said that. Uh, and I said that, and I mean it, because I know War Central Kitchen, I was not supposed to be in Puerto Rico, but we were. And we decided to take our little uh, leadership role that then became a bigger leadership role. We decided to do that. We made that decision. And, you know, I would love to give myself a 10 or an A, but I can't, because we were supposed to feed many more people. I feel we felt them because I feel maybe we were supposed to bring more water to more people and more food to more people. And maybe those 3,000 deaths maybe will be only 1,000. I will never know. But I know I fell because I saw it. I saw, I saw it. And maybe if I had that direct contact with the president by having my restaurant, at the Trump Tower, maybe, maybe, maybe I will be able to reach him. And maybe I will, I will be able to tell him that it's okay to claim you're moving resources, and, but if you don't know what to do with the resources, nothing happens. If you have a, the best hospital in the world right 
on a sh the, the biggest ship hospital in the world right in front of Puerto Rico, but the hospital is empty. And the hospitals have no light. And the doctors are operating with their little lamps on their iPhones. You feel like you are failing because you can say that the ship is there, but the ship is not being used. And our military, our federal government is the most powerful in the world. But somehow something so simple as bringing people that were sick to the hospital was not happening. And we need to realize that this didn't happen. We cannot just say it didn't happen because it didn't happen that we didn't bring them. I wish I had a direct phone with the president because maybe then in a moment of need I will be able to convey that simple message. That yes, we did the best, that the federal government was trying, but that the red tape was maybe not allowing them to succeed. And if he was a man with empathy and caring, maybe he will change the rules of the game. But the idea had the taxes. And sometimes I felt when I went in bed, I was frustrated because I don't want to sound now like a smart ass that I have an answer to everything. But sometimes the biggest problems, they have very simple solutions. Uh, in our case, we had to fit an island. We only were able to feed 100, 150,000 people a day. But I knew how to do million. But somehow I was not empowered to do it. And somehow, maybe if I had better contacts with the White House, if I had better contacts with FEMA, maybe we were supposed to do much more. So now, you know, uh, I'm going to try to establish those contacts. Because if something like Maria happens again in another part of America, we need to make sure that we don't fail the American people and we don't have more than 3,000 Americans dying on his watch. Uh, was not his responsibility. He was not the responsible for the deaths themselves. But I think leadership, 51% of it is empathy. And if you don't have empathy, you cannot be the leader of the people. So in the book, you famously quote President Trump saying he gave himself a 10 for his work in Puerto Rico, and you gave yourself a 5. Why do you give yourself a 5? I think I've been mentioning a few of the things. I, I wish, I wish I was able to activate more things. Uh, I don't want to sound crazy, but you know, uh, did I dream that I will be named the food czar of Puerto Rico at one moment? Yes, I thought about it. <laughs> but oh, it's so funny. I'm talking seriously, and you laugh. A <laughs> mother. To be or not to be. <laughs> but at the end, it was not so difficult. We had a catering company on the airport that could do 250,000 meals a day. Puerto Ricans were without jobs. And somebody at FEMA tried to do a contract with a catering company of two people in Atlanta worth $130 million for $30 million meals. It's true that we never did anything before with FEMA. It's true that we never worked. But the reason I began cooking in the island and 
up my game and do maps and show the people what we were doing was to prove that we had the answers. How do we give that catering company in Atlanta $130 million for 30 million meals when they didn't deliver barely 40,000, and still we need to see if that was true, when we had a catering company that at least could do quarter million hot meals a day with pure distribution, hiring local, employing local, and helping local. We felt those. If the entire island was without jobs, why we didn't keep opening more restaurants, one community at a time, hiring people, taking care of the locals, one town at a time, employing people and moving the economy forward, cheaper, faster, quicker, and more efficient. Why we didn't do that? Only doing that, we could be doing another half a million meals a day. Then we had uh, the school system, uh, Secretary Kelleher, the Secretary of Education, she had more than 900 schools. Every one of those schools had kitchens. I saw it early on, and they had great women who were in charge of the kitchens. I told the secretary, try to open as many kitchens in the schools as you can, and everyone can feed 1,000. Right there, we had another quarter million meals, at least a day. All of the sudden, with a very simple plan, we were feeding million people a day, no problem with food distribution, water distribution, one less problem to take care of. Now let's fix the hospitals, let's fix the electricity, let's fix the roads, and let's take care of everything else. So for a second, I dreamed that I had the plan. I give myself a five because I was only able to do up to 150,000 a day. I wish I was able to finish the master plan that will be maybe reach a million people a day in the aftermath of the hurricane where people were dying because they were hungry, they were thirsty, and they, they didn't receive the medications or the, the medical care they deserve. So I cannot give myself more than a five because I fall short of what my dream was. So the contract that you talked about uh, that was given to the Atlanta caterer, um, I think she um, went through the bidding process. And I remember I talked to FEMA at the time that you were down there and asking, I asked them why they weren't giving you a contract. After you were asking for it, they weren't giving, they would give you small, like two week contracts for X amount of money because they could do that under their rules. But if it was gonna be larger, they said they had to do it through the competitive bidding process. I'm assuming you had this, this conversation with them about how stupid a competitive bidding process must be in a totally. time, times of crisis. And, and this is where I was going to my room and cry at night. At one moment, in the local press, came the news, I don't know by whom, that Jose Andres went to Puerto Rico to get rich. But you have to understand, no? I'm going in one of the most, my most emotional moments in my life. I'm, I feel powerful but powerless at the same time, and you know you can do more, but you are not able. And all of a sudden this comes in a newspaper, even that's a matter, uh, the people were helping us and loving us, but some people were interested in creating this mayhem. That we are talking about a bidding contract that takes at times days or weeks when you have hungry Americans going to bed without anything to eat. When you are coming back from delivering food in a very rainy day 
and you were sad because people in some parts were eating still many weeks later roots, and they were drinking water from dirty rivers. And that day coming back to my hotel, I was sad, but at the same time I had a very strange happiness because while they were drinking dirty water that no one, not even our animals at home should be drinking, I was feeling happy because the rainwater, thanks to that, they were about to have that night good, sweet drinking water. When you have to go through those moments, shouldn't we have leaders at the White House, at FEMA, at the big NGOs that says, red tape is putting the lives of Americans in danger. Red tape should be changed now. The urgency of now is real. We cannot wait for a bidding contract process to go during weeks when you have Americans going hungry and thirsty and dying because of it. Will any American, Republican or Democrat agree with me that no American should go hungry one more day than necessary? That's the type of frustration I have. And for you to understand, because I believe that the people that were trying to help me in FEMA, they had good heart, but I believe that they were handcuffed by all those regulations. I knew where the water was. My people knew that was water in a lot of places. Because they gave us a contract, I will tell them, can you give me water so I can deliver? Because I cannot buy the water. Sorry, you have a contract with us. We cannot give you the water. But I cannot buy it because you are buying all the water. Okay. I told them, why you don't sell me the water? We cannot sell you the water because we are the federal government. So they had the water. They wouldn't give it to us when we had the distribution system. They will not sell it to us when we had the distribution system. And now, a year later, we find out that we had a million cases sitting on an airport. I am not, I left school when I was 14. And I'm not a very smart guy. But if I know somebody there trying to do the work I'm supposed to do and I'm not able, I know by now that I'm gonna be smart enough to say, you know, F-U-C-K regulations. <laughs> so, so the system needs to change. I hope this administration will take it seriously and will help change. I hope Congress will help change. I hope leadership at FEMA will understand that what happened in Maria cannot happen again, but an organization that has the name emergency. Or we redefine the meaning of emergency or emergency should be taken off of the name. But emergency, especially when we talk about food and water, should be now, period. Okay. Now, Jose, I know that um, you were not born in this country, but you are a citizen. Um, you are, I believe, a, a citizen in Bethesda? Yep. Um, I believe you have hinted at some point that you might run for public office. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm highly unprepared. This was a conversation about that everybody Everyone should have opinion, but opinions that count. And to count, you have to put yourself, if you were the president, if you were the senator, if you were the congressman, if you were the mayor, 
what will you do with issues that are important to you? Because until we don't ask ourselves those questions and we come up with answers, it's very difficult really to understand what we stand for. So me, I said, everybody should always think for a second that they are running for office. And so they need to have the understanding that whatever they stand for as private citizens is what they should stand for if they become elected leaders. And by all having that kind of game of understanding what we, will, we should be expecting from our leaders uh, can help us to use, be more uh, sincere with ourselves, more pragmatic with ourselves, in a moment that seems we have everybody trying to make everybody fight with everybody, instead of trying to find where the pragmatism is, where you and I, we can come together even if we disagree in fundamental issues. What is the meeting point? So no, I, I'm, I'm very happy with my wife and my children, with my restaurants, my uh, teaching classes, NGOs, books, TV. Um, <laughs> Uh, I've been trying to get into singing, but they told me no option. <laughs> and I don't think office, but I do believe it's the role of everyone to be more involved. And it's the role of everyone that if you care for something, don't you tell your friends while you're having dinner that you care. Make sure that your voice is heard, make sure that you go out and vote, and make sure that you go out and be part of this American amazing country by participating. Every vote counts, and we need to make sure that we all participate. Are you ready for some questions? Oh yeah, all right. I mean, getting hot. <laughs> but no Senate run. Phil! <laughs> Oh my God. Ladies and gentlemen, Phil Lerman, an amazing person, uh, working TV many, many years of his life, but he came to my rescue when we were doing the PBS show Made in Spain. Uh, he was executive director. <laughs> and I am so scared he's on the mic. <laughs> uh, uh, I just want to say what I know everybody in the audience is, is thinking first. Um, God bless you for what you did in Haiti. God bless you for what you did in Puerto Rico, and God bless you for what you're about to do in North Carolina. I know you, I know what is in your heart. You talk a lot about what happened in Puerto Rico. Can you tell us how it felt for you to be there and to see that kind of need and to see the failure of the American government at that moment? How did that feel for you in that moment? Man, they give the mic to anybody. <laughs> it felt... Uh... At times it felt almost like I was, you know, uh, sad, alone. But very quickly I, I turned around and, and I felt happiness and of the boundless possi possibilities. Uh, I think I, I said that often and it's part of my gig that I think it was Winston Churchill that said that success is going from failure to failure without losing enthusiasm. <laughs> and and was failures, failures and failures of ours, failures of others. But the enthusiasm kept us going. And I believe is what eventually I, I can say we were somehow successful. But what I know is that 
I saw American Puerto Ricans that at times some people were saying that they were not helping, that they were on a strike, that they were taking advantage of. I only saw Puerto Ricans that only care for each other. I actually saw some of the best of the America I love right there in Puerto Rico. And that gave me hope. And there were Republicans and there were Democrats. But nobody was talking about that. There were only people. We, the people under one flag, helping each other to make things happen. For that, I'm very hopeful. And that's how I felt. I believe now more in America than ever because I saw that America is just full of wonderful people. So that's how I felt. Hopeful. Over here. Excellent. Mr. Um, Andres, I'd just like to thank you for being here tonight and thank you for everything you've done. Um, my question is, is that what initially inspired you to become a chef? And then at what point in your life, when did you decide that being a chef is more than just about food, that it's about humanity? Uh, I think I always want, wanted to be a chef. I always cook at my home. I always saw my mom and my dad, both nurses, always feeding us. Uh, we never went to restaurants because we couldn't afford it. So I didn't know that cook at home uh, was because necessity. Even we were working family, but we cook at home because necessity. And, and that, I guess, was wonderful. You know, if I was French, I would say, well, we cook at home every night because, <laughs> well, I'm not French. <laughs> uh, I'm a Spanish with it because necessity. <laughs> and and was wonderful. And, and, and I think uh, reading, uh, you know, again, John Steinbeck, reading The Pearl, uh, on my trip on the Juan Sebastián del Cano sailing around the world first time, going Africa, Ivory Coast, the favelas in Rio de Janeiro, is when I began seeing that was poverty, real poverty, and where food and the lack of food is what created that problem. And then I think arriving to Washington was the moment where my partner Rob Wilder uh, and Roberto Alvarez gave me the opportunity to work but especially Rob Wilder, who took me to DC Central Kitchen, realizing that DC Central Kitchen and Robert Egger, its founder, created the best fighting hunger and creating opportunity in the world. And now Robert is in LA and we helped him open there. And Robert said that charity is not about the redemption of the giver. It seems it's about the redemption of the giver when actually charity should be about the liberation of the receiver. When you give a plate of food, you are liberating the receiver. That's the day I realized that food can be more than just feeding the few, but also feeding the many. Thank you. Uh, I'm actually a GW student, and I happen to be in Puerto Rico as I just happened to be checking the events. And when I saw that you were gonna come speak, I immediately thought of one question. Um, so basically, we stayed in a house in Fajardo, so we would do regular supermarket shopping. And um, I noticed while we were there, the actual quality of the food that they had was, I wouldn't say terrible, but it definitely is not what it should have been. You buy hot dog bread, and the bread is literally just falling apart before you're able to even 
eat it. You, you're trying to make meat on the grill, it falls apart. And just to think that as they're still recovering, this is what people are having to buy. They already have so little money and they're buying such bad quality food. I just wanted to know what's your thought on what could be done and just how it's such a disservice to these people when they're already going through so much. Yeah, I mean, one of the main issues we were facing is that what we call the food stamps, SNAPs, in Puerto Rico, uh, Puerto Ricans that receive uh, federal assistance for food, they, on paper, they receive less dollars per person than they receive anywhere else in America, even when they pay the same taxes anywhere else in America. But when electricity went off and the cell, uh, the satellite systems went off, because now they give those, that money in credit cards, and people didn't have any money, the only thing they had was those cards to buy food. If the supermarket in their area had any food, they couldn't use the cards because the supermarket didn't have any satellite system. So even with food, those people will be hungry because they didn't have access to the food stamps money they had on the card. I saw things like this that were like, but then I saw things that uh, elderly homes that they are called ejidas, was some of the first people we were helping because it was very simple because they, they would live in 10 floor <coughs> buildings. So hospitals, elderly homes, and the elderly homes, the kitchens run on electricity. And many of them live on the 10th floor and they were 80, 90 year old and they couldn't come down because the elevators didn't work. But I was amazed when I saw that we gave them, we didn't, but we were giving them, the federal government agencies, rice and dry beans. So you don't have a kitchen to cook and you don't have water and you give dry beans and dry rice so we need to be having a long conversation in how to make sure that we're able just to provide in a very simple way real solutions to people so they can eat the best possible quality food, the best possible in moments like this. And this is not about serving fancy food, but sometimes serving a humble, good plate of food is easier than more complicated things, like even memories, believe it or not, because the most important is the systems you have in place to reach the people that are hungry more than the quantity of food that you take and you put in the port without knowing who is gonna be in charge of distributing that food. So I don't know if that answered your question, but that's another answer. <laughs> I've been in Washington so long that I watch the politicians all the time, I'm like, very interesting, but let me tell you about my. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much, gracias, viva Puerto Rico. I'll be short. Uh, hola, uh, I'm from Guaynabo, Puerto Rico. Uh, uh, I was there for that, you know, Maria, and every day when we had nothing to do, we would cut trees, we would do community service, and we would take supplies to the mountains, people need it, and it's just, you're an inspiration. I just can't stress that any much. I'm, I'm getting kind of tears just seeing you here. Like, three in the morning was the only time we had signal. I would get on my computer, wake up at three in the morning and see what's going on, and I just see your face every day, splatter around. Like, I'm so happy. 
Now I'm going to ask a really boring local politics question. Um, it's kind of a two-parter. How do you feel about our governor, Governor Rosello's performance following the crisis and recovery? And thoughts on statehood for Puerto Rico? Not D.C., just Puerto Rico in this scenario. I can only take on so many bottles, but if yes, yes, Washington should become a place where every vote counts and we have representation in Congress. We cannot keep treating Washington like we are a colony either. Our votes should count, period. And the same for Puerto Rico, so there you go. So let's fight for both at the same time because we need, we need it badly. Uh, we cannot have a country that beat the Spain. <laughs> we cannot have a country that fought against colonialism and became what it became to give freedom to America. And so many centuries later, still have a colony within the system or treating Puerto Rico like a colony. This doesn't make any sense. And about Governor Rosselló, you know, this obviously can be political. Um, I think he's a person that worked hard. I could see him waking up on Twitter 4 a.m. every day. Probably he went to bed very late every day and you could see him every day somewhere in the island. Uh, on that sense, I think he was there, but with certain decisions that they don't know if, if it's his fault as a governor or FEMA and the federal government. The same things I spoke before, that when you do things by committee, you don't know who's in charge, so nobody's in charge. I believe we need to be creating an MBA for governors, and I mean it seriously, and political leaders. Maybe George Washington, we will create it. So they come and they do an MBA on how to respond to catastrophes like Maria so they can use the full power of, the, of, their, of their government and the federal government to improve the lives of people after hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, and others. I know that the water was an issue that really, I think, was badly handled between the governor's office and FEMA. We were never supposed to be bringing a million gallons of water a day to give water to the people of Puerto Rico when we had more than 100 water plants, 100 oases of sweet water uh, in the island that those oases were supposed to be repaired fast, quick, so the people of Puerto Rico will be having water efficiently every single day. So the electric grid was another one we need to learn was on charge of FEMA, on charge of the governor. Why it took so long to give the order to put uh, in place the reparation of the electrical grid. These kind of things, I think we need to learn from them. Sometimes I don't think it's the moment to criticize, but the moment to learn who was in charge and why the person in charge fell. Was he aware that he was in charge? Or maybe everybody was like trying to see who picked up the, the tap or who made the final decision. So overall, I think the governor was an active person but then in certain things probably, well, because he didn't know better, maybe because he never managed uh, uh, a tragedy like this, 
or maybe because there was total miscommunication between the federal government and the governor's office, certain decisions never happen. And I think it will be good that once and for all we know, so this will, will not happen in Puerto Rico, will not happen in New Orleans, will not happen in Carolina now, et cetera, et cetera. So I think asking those questions is what we should be doing and hopefully getting the answers. But we need this MBA on, 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 on relief for governors and politicians and mayors. I do believe that that will be something very important for the future, and I think somebody should be doing it. Okay, I'll, say I'll try to be quick. Hi, Pedro. Uh, and I bet every Puerto Rican in D.C. is here tonight, so. I grew, up, I grew up in Puerto Rico, and I thank God I left to join the Army a while back ago, but I still have family there. And I just want to say, my, my mom would be here tonight, but she's going to Spain next week, so. But I just want to say, don't blame yourself, please, because every Puerto Rican in the world will tell you, you did what you could, and there's no more that you could do. All we can ask is that you try. Don't beat yourself up, please. We love you. But my but question we, is real we, quick. We, we got the Puerto Rican flag at the Oscars. That one, I bet I, I, I made so much money on the bets. It was amazing. Uh, but quick question is, if you had one chance to do it all over again, what's the one thing that you would do differently? I would do the thing I know, I'm sorry. It's a hard one because I would say, if I didn't tell Time Magazine, the federal government is letting the people of Puerto Rico die, and who was going to tell me they were going to put that in the magazine and in the web all over the place? So nobody will be upset at FEMA and the federal government. But I have a feeling if I didn't say what I said, they wouldn't ever listen to me. So it's kind of I had to do it so they will listen to me. But beyond that, you know, I, next time I will not wait for the federal government. I will activate on my own the catering company. I will find out who I pay for it later. But I will be producing quarter million more meals a day immediately. Hi, I'll do, I'm, I'll, we're we're I'll losing do, the people. I'll do this fast. This is sort of a boring question, but interesting to me is like, it's a management question. You talked about the complexity of this effort. Uh, it involved everything from celebrity chefs to food trucks to firehouses. How in heaven's name did you organize that into a cohesive working machine? <laughs> I never use the word cohesive. <laughs> <laughs> Well, from the outside, it looked like that. How's that? <laughs> uh, uh, I still don't know how we did it. I, I remember we were one time and we needed the helicopter. I said before, and I say, we need a helicopter. We need a helicopter. Okay, and then all my team left. And then three hours later, like, okay, Jose, the helicopter is waiting. <laughs> and I was like, wow. <laughs> all right. So what I know is that people uh, are fascinating when you give them a reason uh, and, and something to work for. And I saw it with this 10-year-old girl, Lolita, Lola. His father and mother will be in one of the food trucks. And Lola will be in charge of this line of almost 200 people 
that they will be making the ham and cheese sandwiches. And to me, to watch Lola, 10-year-old, telling almost 200 people, come on, people, quicker, bread, ham, cheese. <laughs> if Lola, with 10-year-old, can lead a line of 200, imagine what we should be expecting from the President of the United States. Thank you so much. You can uh, my name is Florence. And we are going to do probably two more. Two more. Uh, we will finish with the, the big boy over there. Uh, you two and you two. Sorry. 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 Three. That's it. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to have the nightmare of, and the theater was empty. <laughs> and I was still talking. I want to go with a happy memory. Um, I just um, I wanted to say thank you for feeding so many people in Puerto Rico and everybody everywhere else. I'm from Venezuela, and you have done so much for the world, but especially for feeding our souls tonight with everything that you shared in your books and all of your stories. I brought my son with me. He's 13 years old, and he's sitting in the audience. My question is, what would you tell a 13-year-old today? And if you could tell yourself at 13 something, what would it be? Oh my God. <laughs> what would I tell a 13 year old today about? What would be your message, your advice? Oh, I have my daughters in the audience and they will be like, really? They're asking you this question? <laughs> <laughs> to you, daddy? No. Oh, they're right there. Yeah. <laughs> what I will obviously tell them is that it's always something amazing beyond the horizon. Even if what you see you don't like, even if what you see you think can be improved, even you just have faith. Keep walking to, towards that horizon because the, sun, the sunrise is going to be there. Something more beautiful is going to be beyond that uh, that horizon of hope that we all work for. Don't disrepair, keep going, keep walking, because eventually you will find what you're looking for. That's what I will tell everybody. Just keep walking toward that horizon of hope, because down the way you're gonna find people will help you to reach it, and then everything is possible that way. Gracias. Mr. Andres, you spoke a great deal about uh, World Central Kitchen. How can GW students and private citizens alike get involved to help in your efforts? You are already doing it. I mean, I remember when you were able to get here, Mrs. Obama, because you had to prove that you could do, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of hours of volunteer work, and you became like the number one university in America in volunteer hours. So this community is already very awesome. But I think it goes both ways. I think it's plenty of professors here that they are super involved in things uh, nationally, internationally. And I think this university is, for many reasons, by being so close to the Capitol and the White House, is the perfect place to be. Uh, every one of you can have a voice that goes uh, uh, beyond what you ever imagined. Your actions, obviously, by being so close to the White House, 
One day I hope all of you will come back and with whatever you learn, some of you will run for office, some of you will be here putting into place the things you've been learning in this university. But I think at the end of the day, uh, what you do is not any different from what I do. When I go to feed others, I don't go to feed others. I go to learn. And by doing, you learn. So we need to keep doing, keep learning, so what we learn, we can put it to the service of uh, the betterment of the world in the years to come. So I think you're doing a lot already. We only need to keep knowing each other, talking to each other, and making sure that you keep each other's back. And this way, together, we can make anything happen. Thank you. Guys, we finish. Give a young man looking for advice. So um, I'm 12 years old, and I was wondering. I'm a Boy Scout, so I was wondering if you could give advice for being a good leader. What would you give? You are already showing us what being a good leader is. Because not many 12 years old will go in front of, of an audience like this and we'll get on the mic and we'll ask a question. Probably you have answers already in your brain and still you're humble enough to try to get my answer. <laughs> Why? Because you are smart. Because you are being a leader yourself. Because you know that to be a leader is sometimes recognize that maybe you don't know everything. That maybe you are not smarter than everyone. That maybe you need to be listening to everyone around you that they may know more about what you need to fix. I'm also a student at GW, and my question is sort of similar to the last girl who was also a student, but my question is more like about with limited resources and limited funds as a student where I don't have the money to just go to Puerto Rico and help hands-on, is the best way for young people and for students to help in a disaster to donate money, or is there something else or something more that we could be doing and like mobilize people? I... Listen, uh, this is a great question. I think uh, money is great, but if it's not money, not everybody needs to be doing everything. It's plenty of things in our communities that need help. It's plenty of ways that we can show that we can participate. Uh, one of my favorite NGOs right now, it's a nonprofit in Georgetown called Dog Tag Bakery that trains veterans on business. Uh, and they learn business studying at Georgetown. That's great, it's efficient. Uh, serves fellow Americans, veterans that came back after service to our country. Like that, there's plenty of other organizations, Martha's Table, DC Central Kitchen, but so many others. So don't feel bad by saying something is happening and I cannot participate in. You know one thing, we cannot all do everything. So don't feel bad about it, because I'm sure you already are doing things on your own. But that's why people like me go there. We go there to support the local chef community. That's why we go there. But we cannot all be in everywhere. Just find what you can do here in DC, in your community, and use only by showing up one day somewhere. You, you don't realize, but you may be changing the lives of many. So you show up and help and share what you know, your expertise. 
by being maybe in this central kitchen next to an ex-convict or a homeless, you are already showing them respect. So this is a way to tell them, you may be a homeless, but you are an important part of our community and I'm, I respect you. Only showing that respect, you don't realize, but you are changing Washington and so you're changing America. Thank you. Okay, the last one. Oof. This is like a Senate hearing. <laughs> They're trying to get me. I, I'm, not, I'm not going for the Supreme Court, okay? Hi, Jose Andren. My name is Gina Argodi. Um, my question is, um, in my community, we have so many kids uh, that are crossing the frontier and immigrant families, lots of them. So I wish that we have one Jose Andres in the frontier helping those families. And this is more like, thank you for doing what you're doing. Thank you for your leadership on this issue. Immigration, you know, at the end this comes to immigration reform, um, but this is a different issue, right? Let me tell you what we went to Guatemala. We fed 400,000, we did 400,000 meals. We took care of 15,000 people a day, two meals a day. That's why organizations like World Central Kitchen are meaningful. Because us, by taking care of those Guatemalans, that they lost everything on the volcano. What actually we were doing is making sure that those people will not leave their communities and come looking for a better life somewhere else, maybe America. Because imagine for a second that you are a mother or father and your children are hungry. Put away your political views, any views. Take away your comfort. If you were a father or a mother and your children were hungry, what would you do? You will do anything for them. So unfortunately, in America, we are, even with a lot of problems on our own, the most powerful country in the history of the world. It is our destiny and our duty to try to fix the problems at home and in the pro process, trying to fix the problems overseas. We cannot use build walls. If we read history, and I left school when I was 14, every single civilization that decided to be behind walls was exterminated. Where are the Romans? Where are the Greeks? So walls, don't find solutions. I cannot just keep my daughters behind a wall because I think they're gonna be safer. I believe that my daughters will be safer if I'm able to improve the, the world that surrounds them. I believe in walls. I believe in walls like President Trump does, but he believes in walls of exclusion when I believe in walls of inclusion Walls that build communities, that build schools, that build some universities, community centers, hospitals. Walls that create a better world for all. By World Central Kitchen going to Guatemala, I know that indirectly we help to not have more undocumented immigrants trying to come to America. We were investing into solutions, not throwing money at the problem. Building a wall is throwing money at the problem. I believe in the betterment of every single country around America as a true way to a better future. 
we want to protect America, let's make sure America is strong and our communities do well, but in the process, let's be generous and let's make sure that we try to improve other communities around the world. This way, we will have always a safer and more prosperous America. That's what I believe. So, guys, all right, now we're gonna do a cooking class. <laughs> so, Jose is, just given us an hour and 15, 20 minutes of your time, and now you're gonna jump into a car and go give more people your time. This is what you do. The great Jose Andres. Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.